do that. Hey, uh, today we have Sam Collier with us, and this is Sam's new book that uh, I pre-ordered and got, finished it this week, and you're going to be blessed by him. Sam is, uh, I, I met Sam or I saw Sam through the Rethink Leadership and Orange Conference, which I've been going to for years. Sam's been a part of North Point Ministries, uh, is getting ready to plant a church uh, in the Atlanta area. He and his wife, uh, Tony, had their six-year-old daughter, Dylan, live in Atlanta. And you're going to be blessed by his story, and you're going to get a chance if you, he brought some books uh, at the end. And here's something that's really important to me in this, in this time and this season. I believe that it's part of my role to steward this platform. And uh, one of those things means stewarding it to the next generation. I'm Gen X, born in 77, and I want to steward this platform also for the next generation. Sam is squarely a millennial, and uh, so we're glad to have, um, have a millennial sharing the stage today. But also, as last week we began a, a series, Elephant in the Room, and talking about race, um, I wanted to invite Sam to have someone from a different perspective uh, to share their story. So Sam's going to tell you a little bit about what God's laid on his heart. And at the end of the day, I'm going to get to ask him some questions that I think can help us with the conversation we began last week uh, on race. So prepare your hearts for what God wants to speak through Sam Collier. Awesome. Awesome. How are you guys doing? Anybody excited to be at church right now? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It is a different kind of season, isn't it? I mean, we've got masks everywhere. You don't really know who is who, right? You're walking down the hall. You're like, is that, I think, behind the mask, and so on and so forth. So excited to be here. I am all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Anybody been to Atlanta before? Anybody? Okay. Awesome, awesome. So excited to be here. Listen, just before we get started, can we make some noise for Pastor Carter? Come on, give it up. Give it up for him. I'm going to just call you Pastor C. Can I call you Pastor C? He's got his Jordans on today. Did anybody see his Jordans? Anybody? He put those on. I said, I, I got to put mine on too just so I can be like him. <laughs> so excited again uh, to be here. I, I, I'm excited specifically about uh, this series, Elephant in the Room, that we're in. I, I just believe this, and I don't know if you do, but, but I believe you do. I, I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. I just believe that. The local church is the hope of the world. I think the local church should be the conscience of the nation. And if we are to be the conscience of the nation, if we are to be the local, I'm sorry, the hope for the world, then the local church has to lead out on many of the issues that we find ourselves in today. The church has to show up in a way like never before. And that's why I'm so excited about this series because it is a form of leadership from the church becoming the conscience of the nation on some of the sticky, most stickiest issues that we face today. So I'm, I'm so excited, again, to dive into some of these today and to take it to another level. Um, there's one principle I want to share with you today that I believe um, if the church were to get its hands around would truly help us uh, be the hope of the world, specifically on these issues. It would help us really lead out in a way like never before, in a way that Christ, I believe, uh, wants us to lead out on it with. Um, in order to understand that principle, I want to leverage my story to show it to you in a real way. So if you were to just bear with me for 
an hour or three. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just a couple of minutes. Just bear with me for a couple of minutes. I'd love to leverage my story to illustrate a principle that can help us lead out on these issues. When my mother was 21, she had me and my twin sister. That's two kids. Then she had three already. So that's five kids, age 21. Um, extreme poverty. Uh, our father was addicted to all types of substances. In fact, um, we actually lost my biological father. I recently found out, and I'll tell you more about that later, but we lost him three months ago from COVID-19 in New York City um, in the hotbed. He uh, had diabetes at the time, and he left the hospital that he was in and went down the street to go buy some drugs, contracted COVID-19, and went back and passed away in the hospital. I tell you that part of our story so you kind of understand where he was at the time and how long substance abuse um, was in his life. So here my mother is in the hospital trying to make a decision. Do I raise them in poverty or do I give them up for adoption, kind of send them up the river like Moses and hope that everything will work out? And that's what she does. She gives us up. Now, don't get too sad because we did get adopted by a lovely couple who met in Washington, D.C., on a Sunday afternoon at 3 p.m. Uh, my father who adopted us, um, he, he was in the laundromat on this Sunday doing what he does. You know, he's washing clothes. He usually went on a Saturday, but for some reason he went on a Sunday today. My mother is on the other side of the laundromat. They didn't know each other. And actually, uh, she was in the laundromat because she was looking for an alibi. And you go, an alibi? What does she need an alibi for? Well, the night before, she had gotten hit in the head with a hammer by her ex-husband. So she got up the next morning. She was married to uh, a Black Panther. I don't know if any of you know anything about the Black Panther Party, but some of them are a little aggressive. Just a little. And so he was extremely aggressive, and the night before, he hit her in the head with a hammer. So she got up saying, by any means necessary, I got to get out of this situation. I just share it with you and whoever's watching online. Don't tell anybody. She was going to go kill him. So she's walking around the laundromat with a gun in her purse looking crazy and runs into my dad. And he said, what's up, girl? She said, I don't know you, you know, because she was just crazy that day. Right? Long story short, they end up walking out of the laundromat. Never looked back. Uh, my dad was in the middle of his second divorce at the time. He went through with it. My mother obviously was trying to get out, and so she went through with her divorce. Um, and they realized that they should probably give their life to Christ. They said, listen, we've done it our way long enough. My dad at the time um, was 50. He was 50 years old, and he gives his life to Christ for the first time. After they give their life to Christ, they get married. After they get married, they start doing what married people do. Now, I don't need to educate you on that because if you're married, hopefully you're doing it. 
very, it's a healthy part of marriage. As they do the do, somebody just called it, they realize that they can't have kids. And so my mother, she says, listen, I've always wanted to have kids. Um, can we at least adopt? And my dad says, yeah, we can adopt. But if we adopt, I want to make sure we get them from birth. So they leave Washington, D.C., come down to Atlanta, drive down to Augusta, Georgia, two months uh, after we had been given up for adoption, walk over to our crib in the adoption agency, and they look over and they say, we want them. And the lady who's running the adoption agency, I'll just be honest, she was a white woman in the 80s. She runs across the room to my parents, and she, and she says, you don't want them because you see where they come from. They're probably not going to be much. Addiction, uh, prostitution. Uh, many uh, people say, you know, when you look at the, the adoption papers, you go back and look that they traced some of my mother's steps back to a prostitution house. We don't know if she was prostituting or if she was just living there, but biological. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie War Room before, but in War Room, they have a little something they call a prayer closet. And my parents, who, who were getting ready to adopt us, stepped back, and they looked at the lady, they said, hold on, and they formed a little prayer closet in the adoption agency, and they start praying. They said, God, what do you want us to do? What is this? Show us your will. And they say, the Lord told them, these are your kids. They're going to be okay. And so they adopt us anyway, take us home. Um, Channel 2 Action News in Atlanta comes out to the house. It's the week of Christmas, a couple of days before, and the headlines read, Christmas Miracle. And as you can see, this is what we looked like when we came home. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yes, my head was big. <laughs> I know. But you don't have to tell me that. And some of you over here, you laughed a little too much over here. I heard it. It was, it was a little too much, okay? Take it off the screen. It's filling up the screen too much. Thank you. Take the picture. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and that began kind of our, our, our childhood raised on Auburn Avenue, historic Auburn, where uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. Center is, um, where the above tombs of Coretta and MLK sit above ground. And, you know, my dad had a barbershop on Auburn, and every now and then uh, he would bring homeless people out to the house, and they would be cutting the grass. And he would say, get them some water. And I'm like, why are we taking homeless people water? He said, shut up, boy, and get them some water. I didn't realize till later what he was doing, but he was exposing us to, uh, to poverty at a young age. My mother worked corporate FedEx and quit her job in corporate FedEx uh, to be a secretary in the school system in order to guide our academic career. And so she looks at my sister and she says, well, She's smart, and she puts her in all these magnet programs. My sister gets all A's from kindergarten up to 12th grade, becomes an industrial engineer, Spelman and Georgia Tech grad. And then she looked at me. She said, well, we know he talks a lot, right? Well, maybe he's an artist, and she put me in performing arts schools, and by 10th grade I was playing six instruments, and finally I'm here with you today. I feel like I made it. God really did take a mess 
and turn it into a miracle. After some years, um, for my sister becoming this incredible engineer and me going on to do ministry and all of the different things I would go on to do, um, my dad called us over to the house for a little tradition we had in our house called NFL football. Anybody else get that tradition? Anybody else? Okay, awesome. A little tradition, NFL football. It was a Sunday again afternoon, and there was one rule during the game. There was one rule that we always had to abide by from age one all the way up. Nobody talks during the game. Nobody talks during the game. My, my dad said this, listen, if you talk during the game, you have to get out. We're like, okay, okay. So we're all sitting there watching the game. And my dad breaks the rule. And now, I didn't tell you this about my adopted dad, but Dr. Dad, he, uh, he's from the country, Griffin, Georgia. I say chickens, cows, rutabagas. But you know about it. Um, and he was just a little bit loud. Now, not everybody from the country is loud, but does, any, does anybody know anybody loud from the country? Anybody? Okay, awesome. So he, he was loud, and he breaks the rule in his country fashion, and he's speaking normal, but he's actually yelling at us. And he looks at me and my sister, and he says, you know what you need to do? We said, what? He said, well, you need to go find your parents. What? Well, you could grow up one day and marry your cousin, and you would never know it. I said, what? He said, do you want to marry your cousin? No. Well, you need to go find your biological family. Okay. <laughs> he said, and another thing, the Steve Harvey show is going to help you do it. I said, you've lost your mind. In that moment, I got up and I walked out of the room. Here's what we discovered. My father, I told you, had a barbershop on Auburn. If you've ever been to the black barbershop before, you know, there's a couple things that you do, right? It's kind of uh, the black male center of the South, right? Uh, he, 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 you eat, you cut hair, and you watch TV. And so every day, he would watch the Steve Harvey show, and he said the Lord told him that Steve Harvey was gone. I just thought he lost his mind. Well, I found out uh, two weeks later, he convinces my sister to write into the show. And I said, I called her. I said, why'd you write into the show? Y'all don't, you didn't even want to write into the show. She said, well, he just kept yelling. I wrote in. She said, and Steve's not going to call us back. Ellen's not calling you back. Oprah's not going to call you back. I said, fine, that's fine. A year goes by, my sister calls me. I answer the phone. She says, the Steve Harvey show just called me. They're going to call you by and hung up the phone. <laughs> My phone rings again. It's a Chicago number. I answer. She says, hey, this is Dorothy from the Steve Harvey Show. I said, hey, Dorothy. She said, this is my first week on the job. I used to work at Jerry Springer. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know why we did. She said, but they put 100 stories on my desk. Yours is the top story. We think we can help you find your parents. Do you want to do it? I said, let me call you back. I hung up. I called my sister. I said, Sarah, do you want to do it? She says, No but I feel like we have to. This doesn't just happen like this. So they end up flying us up to Chicago. When we get to Chicago, um, they say, we're so sorry. We didn't find anybody, but we want to bring you on the show to make a plea that maybe your biological family would show up. And so we go on the show, and then this happened. Let's see it. Everybody, uh, my next guests are twins with an absolutely incredible story. Uh, they were given up for adoption at birth, and today they're asking everyone at home for help finding their biological mother. 
Please welcome Sarah and her twin brother, Sam. Welcome. So, Sam, let me ask you, what do, what do you know about your birth mother? We don't know that much. What we do know um, from the papers that we had, about 100, about 100 pages in this particular packet, um, we were born down in Augusta, Georgia. She was 21 when she had us, mm -hmm. and her sole income was welfare. That's all she had. And I think at that moment, she had to make a decision when we were born. Do I raise them in poverty, or do I uh, give them up for adoption and pray and hope that they would be adopted into a family that could take care of them? Mm -hmm. And so that, that's what happened. What do you think? Yeah, Steve, um, you know, we don't really know much about the situation under which she gave us up for adoption, but we just like to think that she did it, you know, out of love in her heart. Tell me a little bit about your childhood. What was it like for you? I got to say, it was unbelievable. You know, I call it the Moses story. Our mother gave us up, and we were raised by two amazing people. I mean, I think people are a little bit shocked sometimes because we don't really have that much resentment or so on and so forth because we, there were no holes in our heart. Our, our dad was at every basketball game, there were every cheerleading match. They were, they were everywhere. And, um, you know, we believe that our mom was supposed to birth us, but our parents were supposed to raise us. Wow. Yes, Steve, um, you know, our childhood was amazing. Um, you know, our parents afforded us some opportunities that I don't think we would have had, you know, under di different circumstances. You know, they really valued education and, you know, they taught us to be faithful in God. And as a result, you know, I was able to go to Spelman College and Georgia Tech under a full scholarship. Wow. Thank you. That's right. And so today I'm an industrial and systems engineer and I think, you know, under different circumstances, I don't think I would be who I am today, so. What do you do? Uh, I went to ministry school, I'm a pastor, and um, I have a nonprofit. We've <laughs> helped over 80,000 kids in Georgia, and your I life worked out for me. <laughs> <laughs> a pastor? <laughs> That's pretty good, man. Wow, these had to be two really great people. Oh, yeah, they, they're unbelievable. You couldn't ask for better. Well, they're here. The twins' adopted parents, Lamar and Belinda, support their search, and they're here today. Lamar and Belinda, welcome to the show. <laughs> I, guess, I guess Lamar said, I'm gonna stand up and clap for myself. <laughs> Lamar and Belinda, you encouraged them, obviously. How was that for you? It was an awesome, awesome situation. These guys here, they was made for me and my wife to raise. As far as the adoption come about, I, I decided after they got some age on them, they, they need to know their biological mom. So we sat down around the table and we talked about everything. And uh, Sarah said, well, I write a letter to Steve Harvey because if anybody can help us, it will be Steve Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Really? Yeah. That's why we're here today. Wow. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. And I'm truly grateful for what the mother did. And my purpose is to say to her, thank you. Thank you for having enough courage, enough love in your heart to do the right thing for some children who were more than deserving to have it. Wow. We yeah. thank you. Really? Well, uh, Sarah and Sam uh, want some help finding their mom and their siblings. Well, coming up next, we got some experts here who are going to help you. Make a strong plea to find your biological family. Now, here's the thing. I know I said that we didn't find your birth mother, but that's not the case. Eleanor, come on out.
Eleanor, would you like to say something? Yes, I've been looking for you guys. Uh, ever since I, I gave you up for adoption, I was young and wasn't able to take care of you. But when I got older, I, re I was able and I've been looking for you. And I'm currently as uh, a STNA, and I'm in school for healthcare administrator. I turn my life over to God. I've been praying. <laughs> I'm grateful that you guys are doing good. And I want to thank the parents for raising them. Thank you. Thank God. I've been praying 25 years to find you guys. Sam, let me start with you. How you how you feeling? My human side is leaning in one direction, but my spirit is saying, hallelujah. I'm having this war. There's this war happening. There's this war happening in, in me that's, that's wanting me to feel one way, but I feel God is saying, I know you're feeling this way, but, what I, but I, need you to, I need you to say thanks because I've been carrying you from day one. And so I got, I got to say thanks. Oh, thank you. Love Steve, Steve, Steve. Hey, man, you got to have some moments in you where you resent and you wonder, but man, oh, man, oh, man, to have just this moment of peace, this moment of resolution, what, man, that's worth, it's, it's worth the whole trip. And my God, them two people over there, man. All right, I got something else, too. So, where it's, well, your siblings is here, too. It's so, Erica, Jarrell, and LaShawn, come on out. This the good one right here. This your brother. Right. <laughs> this the good one. Oh, okay. I thought it was your little brother. I want to say thanks to all my guests. This has been great. No more words. We'll be back. Is everybody okay? I should have warned you, but I didn't. I'm sorry. Um, God is good. God is good. I, I, um, we, we wrote this book about this story um, because when we started telling the story, 
I started getting questions from Christians and just people of, about how God can work in a mess and turn it into a miracle. Of how God can take the broken pieces of our lives and, and write a story um, that's better than the one that we could ever write. There was a tagline that we put together that we believe helps people, and it's this one, that when your story connects to God's story, it leads to a greater story. When your story connects to God's story, it leads to a greater story. I think about when we think um, about this nation and where we are. It seems like we could find ourselves in a little bit of a mess, Right? I always say we're coming out of the season of the double pandemics, COVID-19 and civil unrest all around our world. For, for many of us, even today, um, watching online and in this room, you've lost loved ones. You've lost jobs. You've experienced depression in a way like never before. You've been faced with things um, that you never thought you would face. And for many of us, that's very true. I lost, obviously, we lost our biological father three months ago, randomly, and then a week after I lost my uncle, a week after that lost my aunt. So this season is not a season without trouble. It's not a season that uh, comes with a lack of mess, right? We, all of us, in some sense, find ourselves in a little bit of a mess. But the beauty that we find in the gospel is that with the power of God and with the power of Jesus, he can take our mess and turn it into a mirror. He can reach into our story and create a greater story. No matter what the situation is, no matter how crazy it gets, he can write a greater story. But here's the trick, if we let him. If we let him. When we talk about this idea of a greater story, the number one factor within it is the ability to, to let your story connect to his. In other words, it's not just God being a genie in heaven that just waves a magic wand and everything changes. It is a partnership with him and humanity, and we have a part to play. And our part to play within the story is to connect ours to his. And that's how we lead and that's how we get to a greater story. Uh, if I were to reach down into a greater story, I talked to you about one principle that I wanted to share with you that I believe truly helps us, one, in this season, but in the midst of the trouble that we find ourselves in. It, it, the principle is this one, sacrifice, principle of sacrifice. What's one of the ways that you can connect your story to God's story, no matter what happens around you? Sacrifice. Through your sacrifice, you can connect your story to God's story. Through your sacrifice, we can see this country change. 
through your sacrifice, we can become unified in a way like never before. On the bed of your sacrifice. Can I say it this way? On the other side of your sacrifice is a miracle. It's greatness. When we look at our story, the number one thing that continues to be to go throughout it is sacrifice. 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 In fact, Jesus had something to say about this idea of sacrifice when he's approached by someone that's an expert in the law. And I want you to see this. Can we put it on the screen? I love this story. It says, on on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love, I love it, your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, uh, and, and this is it, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Just before we go on with the rest of the verse, I just want you to pause right there and think about that. And who is my neighbor? He he asked Jesus, what what do I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to get to that next level in the kingdom? What, What can I do? And he says, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he asked the question, but but who's my neighbor? If you just think about that question for a second, there's a lot in that question. Because it is it is as if he doesn't know who his neighbor is. I mean, it's an obvious question. We know who your neighbor is. It's the person that's next to you. It's every person. So why is he asking? He's trying to find a loophole. He's trying to find a way out. And who is my neighbor? And here's what Jesus says. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, a priest. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, that's the worship leader, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, I want you to remember this word right here. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an end, and took care of him. The next day, He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go 
and do likewise. I won't spend too much time on this, but what I will say is that we have a man that's been beaten. We have a man that's on the ground. It's actually a Jew. We have a Jew on the ground. And the pastor walks by. He looks at him and he walks by. And then the worship leader comes by and looks at him and walks by. Now, here's the question. Why is Jesus using these two men as examples? Because these are your usual suspects, right? These are the ones that you're thinking, of course the pastor's going to say something. Of course the, word, the, Levi, of course the Levite. He just walks on by. And then a Samaritan comes. Now, why does he choose a Samaritan? Because in that moment, Samaritans and Jews didn't play together. Historically, it was said that they weren't supposed to mess with each other, right? Their cultures were against each other. And in the story, it's beautiful. Jesus is hitting so many things at one time. He's like, I'm going I'm to address racism. I'm going to address classism. I'm going to address every ism that we have in one story. I'm like, Jesus, well, he's God, all right? He can do that. In one story, I'm going to hit everything. And he says, the Samaritan was the neighbor to the man. He reached across political affiliations. He reached across historical tragedy. He reached across prejudice. He reached across classism. And he picked him up. Woo! He bandaged his wounds. Took him to the hotel, put him up, and said, put all his expenses on me. You know what he did? He sacrificed. Think about my story of my parents. They came and they picked us up and bandaged our wounds and quit jobs and spent money and did, every, did everything they could for two kids that had been written off. And you know, and know, and you know what happened after their sacrifice? On the heels of their sacrifice was the miraculous When your story connects to God's story, it leads to a greater story. But in order to connect your story to God's, there has to be an element of sacrifice. And I just believe that in this season, God's going to give you an opportunity to sacrifice something. And on the other side of your sacrifice is going to be the miraculous. And you know what? On the other side of somebody else's sacrifice is going to be the miracle that you need. As we come together as the church and we sacrifice for one another, we change each other's lives. And I just believe that sometimes God is waiting on us to sacrifice something in order to open up something else for us. Uh, a lot of mentors told me sometimes, many times you plant what you want to see in your own life. You sow the seed that you need in your own life for things to change. If we could do that, I just believe this world would be different. And I believe your life would be different. God, we thank you today for who you are. 
For many of us, we are going through so much. It can be hard to think about the idea of sacrificing for another. Would you give us the strength in this season to sacrifice? Would you give us the ability to sow the seed that we need in our own lives? Would you comfort us? Through our sacrifice, God, would, would you change our city? Would you change our family? Would you bring hope back into our lives like never before? God, through our sacrifice, would you make the church everything it's supposed to be? So that maybe somebody's life, even like myself, can be changed forever. That a greater story will be written. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, my man. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't socially distance. That's Sorry. right. We did, we did not. That's all right. Um, but you don't I, have COVID. No, I do not. Okay, I do not. Okay. Um, uh, I was tested this week because I got a little shoulder thing coming up. So we're good. Okay. okay. Um, uh, I want to, we're going to close out here in just a second. I want to take a minute just to ask you a few questions uh, about your perspective on the issue. You, I love what you said right at the beginning that the church, man, I love that line that we can be the social conscience, the, the, the character conscience of the nation, especially in this issue of, of race. Um, how, do you, how can you see the church leading, and especially not just the global church, but even churches in their local community? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I think if the church doesn't lead the way, we don't have any hope. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. the church has to be the model for racial reconciliation in our world. You yeah. know, Dr. King often said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. That's right. And there's a reason for that. There's historic reasons and so many, you know, yeah. so many things. But I, I think one of the biggest ways that as the church we can lead the way on this issue is by, and many people think this is a sim simplistic line, but it is really um, the foundation, I think, of all change is, is do life with people that are different than us. Yeah. And not just you know, once a month yeah. or, once a, or a couple every quarter, but really start to engage with people that are not like us, hang out in public together, right. get to know each other. I, but I, I do think relationships are at the foundation, at the core yeah. of, um, of, of, of racial reconciliation. Yeah, and I, this is my opinion. I think this is our greatest evangelistic opportunity in a long time. Yeah. Because I think that if the church can model this, the world is going to be uh, having an ear turned more to our message yeah. to just say, wow, how do they get that right? Get right, that. right? You well, know? And, and that's huge because I think when people hear, well, just getting relationships, they think, well, we got all this systemic stuff and we got all this. like, yes, there are, there is a history, a ugly history in our country right. um, around race. But here's what I've discovered. I've got friends that are politicians. I've got friends. I got a, a lot of Republican friends that voted for Donald Trump. 
have a lot of Democratic friends <laughs> that have voted for Hillary. I mean, yeah. I, I've got people on both sides that I do life with. Yeah. And sitting in the middle of both, what I've realized and what I've seen over the years is that the change that we want to see in this country does not happen without understanding. Mm. If there is a lack of understanding around our two worlds, um, then the people that have the ability to change things that sit in seats of power don't change it because they don't understand it. But when yeah. you, when it's different, I'll give an example. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about over the last couple of months, police brutality was a big thing, right? right. I'll talk about Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and all these different things. Well, when Trayvon Martin got shot, which was the first one, right? It was the first one. I have a friend of mine who is a, I mean, her husband probably was the face of medical technology in the country for a long time. Okay. Strong Republican. I mean, just, like, he would be the one that's like, police brutality doesn't exist. I mean, he was, yeah. you know. Um, and so for her, even understanding that was, I mean, it was just a, it was a different world, honestly, yeah. just a different, hadn't had that experience. And she, she had just formed a relationship with, with us and some other, and, and um, my roommate, who's a young African-American male, he was crying when Trayvon Martin got, he's crying, and, and I'm, he's upstairs, like, and so she calls me, and what she doesn't say is, let's talk about the case of Trayvon. She said, why is Antoine crying? Mm. <laughs> right? That was, yeah. she just couldn't, she was like, hey, I, I, okay, we, there's a lot about this I don't understand. Yeah. And there's a lot that's in the way, like when we talk about the Samaritan and the Jew, there, there's, there's historical things. There's, she said, but I, I want to know, before we talk about Trayvon, I need to know why Antoine is crying. Because I know Antoine. Yeah. I love Antoine. And if, there, if he's crying, I need to get to the bottom of that. And, and many times, that, that's what I have seen bring us together like never before. It's been relationship. Yeah. Because we can get into hours and hours of conversations around race, and we can debate all day about politics and police and all these other things. But it's very difficult to run away from relationship. Yeah. So I think that's why I always say relationship is the key. Yeah. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I want to ask a question about <clears throat> the positioning of the church, and you face this. I know you face some online criticism <laughs> from both sides because you really, um, yeah. I, like, I don't, I'm a pastor. I don't know anything about criticism. Um, uh, from both sides because you wouldn't sort of, you didn't want to take a side. Yeah. So, and you, and, but you said this in an interview with Carrie Newhoff that I listened to a podcast, you said you realized there was nowhere you could stand in this battle and not take a bullet oh unless you weren't in it. Yeah. And I thought that's so good. And you could only take them from one side or the other side, but if you stand in the middle, you might take twice as many. So just tell me about, but I think that's so important. And that's where we tried to position. That's where I've tried to position myself and our church is like, Hey, there's no side, there's a gospel side to take, and we're in relationship with one another, and we're learning, but we're going to love everyone because of the gospel. So just talk about that. Yeah, you know, oftentimes the answers are in the middle. Yeah. Um, and when we, when, we, when we think about our country, and all, like, oftentimes there, people on both sides have points that matter. Yeah. And, and that's one of the reasons why unit, Jesus always prayed that we would be one. Yeah. Because we are really better together yeah. and we do live in different places and we and and you know one of the reasons why politics is so divisive 
is because we tend to vote based on our immediate and individual concerns. And so all of us, and we all, because we live different lives, it's like, well, this is what's right. in front of me. This is what I care about. This is what I'm going through. So we tend to vote based on what we're going through. Right. Um, and it, it's no secret. It's like, you know, I, I grew up Democratic just because I was in a black family. It's what we voted like. It's what we did. It's a, and that's all, that was the only narrative that I knew. And when I came over on the other side, when I got, not necessarily, I didn't become a Republican. I'm actually bipartisan. I'm not either. But it's because I grew up Democratic, and then I'm, I got friends on the Republican side. I'm like, okay, you lived, you know, you voted that way. And when I think about your life and what you've seen and what you've understand, I can cognitively understand how you arrived at that conclusion. The same way I can cognitively understand how the de Democratic side, right. that's why it's Christians on both sides, in a sense. That's right. I say all of that to say, usually the answers are in the middle. Yeah that when we sit down and when we actually talk to each other and we actually understand. So, with all that being said, the middle is hard. Yeah, yeah. The middle is hard because Jesus' hands were stretched out to the far right and the far left, and his broken body was in the middle. Woo. You could take your offering? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so, yeah. And it's true. And there's, some, and there's some brokenness that'll happen in the middle. Um, all right, I'll, last thing I want to ask you to say something to uh, white friends and African-American friends. Yeah. I think for me as a, a white leader, I think exactly what you said when all of this kind of happened this summer, I thought, and I saw our, my black friends in church hurting, and I, I didn't know. I, like, I thought, like, I, so I thought, I don't feel like I'm a racist. I, I, I told a little bit of my story last week about kind of growing up yeah. in, the, in that world, but I, I feel like the Lord's brought me, delivered me from that. I'm, I'm still learning. Um, and uh, what, can, what can I do? How can, what, do, what do you need specifically white leaders to do? What do you want to say to white people who would say, like, I didn't, I'm not a racist, and I don't, and I want to have, I want the best for my, my black friends. Um, how can they step across that, those cultural lines like the Samaritan and then maybe on the other side to, to black friends, what, what, how would you talk to them for them to step across uh, the, yeah. the cultural lines as well? It's a great question. Um, this is why the middle is difficult. Um, because somebody's going to hate you on both sides. It's, yeah. I think the greatest moment for me over the last two months around the racial unrest in our country. I mean, it's it a, it a kind of an oxymoron to say the greatest moment, but the most encouraging moment for me was it, it, there was one day when my phone was ringing on both sides. Yeah. My black friends were calling me and my white friends. And, there was, and I'm not talking about the outliers, because I think you have outliers. When I, the, the, I call them the 10 percenters, right? Yeah. The I hate black people people and I hate white people people like yeah. you get a 10% right. but if we come outside of the 10% and we kind of come into the margins of you know the, the, the believers but we just happen to vote differently the most encouraging thing that I heard was um, black people going okay so it was it's not that you don't care about me it's that you don't understand what I went through. Okay. Because 
at one time the narrative was, you know what I'm going through and you don't care. Right. But then it shifted from, okay, it's not that you don't care, it's that you don't fully understand and know. Yeah. That was encouraging. And then on the other side, my white friends are going, I think there's a little more to the story. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so that, I, I think that's what I would encourage all of us to do, no matter where you sit. If you're a black person going, and, and all, this is why the context of relationship is so important, because it is not until you actually start doing life with someone from the opposite race that you truly understand what's happening on the other side. And doing life isn't, I see you at church every now and then. Doing life yeah. is, I'm having you over consistently for dinner. We're having the hard conversations. You're telling me about your life. You're telling me about your experiences. You're, and it's from that place because your heart breaks, and then you yeah. go, okay, let me, let me fully understand. So uh, l- my bottom line to this is, to my white friends, let's consider that there's more to the story, that there's maybe some things that we didn't, that you have not discovered because you grew up where you grew up. Yeah. And, on my, on, and to my black friends, um, let's consider that maybe there's some things that they don't know as opposed to they don't care. And I think from that place, if we can come together um, and, tru- and start from there, we can gain some understanding. Yep. We can solve a lot <clears throat> over coffee or some chips and salsa. Right. Right. We can solve a right. lot over a meal together. We're going to eat after this. We're going to go Where are you it? taking me? We're not going to take Sam in Birmingham. We're, we're, we got a bur- it's got to be a Birmingham special. So, right. Hey, listen, I want to pray for you. And we've gone uh, a little long today. Thanks, though. It's been well worth it, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Love you guys. Thank you. <clears throat> So I'm going to put a, a hand on Sam's shoulder, and if you just want to lift, lift a hand out just to pray for him and his ministry. Heavenly Father, thank you for Sam. Uh, we just pray for him and his wife, Tony, and uh, their, their family. God, we're just praying for you to bless him and whatever you else have uh, in store for him, God, as he sacrifices for you so that his story could become your greater story uh, in this world. Because, God, we're in a world that needs some great stories. And uh, we lift this up in Jesus.